that take time to do two things, to help your kids become grounded in the Word of God, but also to be willing to stand in front of people and declare the Word of God. If they can do it here in front of you, they can probably do it on the playground, don't you suppose? Yeah. I mean, um, what, a good, what a good thing. Okay, so today's the sixth. Here's a proverb of the day, verse 23. The law of the Lord is a lamp. So we're in a new series, and um, so let's just jump right in, and I'll explain the series as we go. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Our weapons are not made up of strength and wisdom, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to <laughs> obey Christ. If you're a, a, a football fan, um, you maybe saw a playoff game, a 2018 playoff game between the Minnesota Vikings and uh, the New Orleans Saints. Maybe you didn't see it, but um, it, there were clips that played over and over again um, afterwards. And what was going on there in this game was that New Orleans took the lead the second half. They'd been behind. And it looked like they were about to win the game 24 to 23, and the clock was running out. And uh, Minnesota got the ball with about 25 seconds left. And and uh, they made a couple of plays, and they got down to just, I think, five or ten seconds left. There was still enough time for one, you know, a typical NFL game. If you watch the last 60 seconds, you see the whole game, right? right? So um, they, they get down to ten seconds left, and uh, Case Keenum the, throws this 27-yard pass to Stephon Diggs, who runs 61 yards, and time runs out. Touchdown, wins the game, um, and um, the place kind of went nuts. And, and, and the, the thing was that it was... Um, uh, that play became known as the Minnesota Miracle because that has never happened before in an NFL playoff game um, where um, um, the game ended on a touchdown to, to finish a playoff game. And, um, you know, there's, the, have you ever noticed how nutty stati- statisticians are in pre- professional sports? I mean, if you watch a baseball game, there are stats for, like, left-handed batters on Thursdays if it rained the day before, how many triples they've had. And, I mean, they just get all these weird things. Well, so there are, here, here, this is a fact from some statistician in the NFL. There are 34,710 plays every season, not counting the playoffs. 34,000, I mean, who counts the number of plays? However, whatever, for whatever reason people keep statistics, this had never, ever happened before where um, there had been a touchdown on the final play to win. Maybe, maybe you'd like to see the play. Let's, let's see the play. Okay, so I, I wanted you to be able to see the replays, but that is a literal game-changing play, right? Any football fans here? 
You're, you're the godly ones. Isn't there a morning game on today? So you have got... There's no game today? Oh, that's why you're in church. <laughs> the godly Christians have a DVR to watch for them and tell them about what happened later, and they go to the house of the Lord. Anyway, so that was a game-changing, literally, game-changing play. They went from behind to they won, and they advanced um, on in, uh, in the playoffs. And um, what's that got to do with our, our series? Well... This series is going to be over the period of time, we're going to be over five, five or six or seven weeks, I haven't decided yet, um, of, of, of scriptures that I would call game-changing scriptures. They, they're always in a context, and we'll look at the context, but it's a scripture that if you get the message, if you get the point of that scripture, it will change your life. It has the opportunity to change your life. And, um, and what we're going to look at is these, as, look at these different game changer scriptures and as we do each one of them will be able to smash a stronghold there's a stronghold connected to each one of these and it will just smash that stronghold so one one sma- one smash stronghold every week so let's let's pray as we get started lord as we get into your word you, this is the one thing that you said you would honor even above your name and that's your word so as we explore we open our hearts lord we realize that the veil was torn so that we might have fellowship and it would be intimate fellowship with you. Speak to our hearts, Lord, through your word today. Help us to grasp the truth, the life that's there. And Lord, because it's being shared by an imperfect vessel, let the chaff blow away in the wind, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay. So um, uh, that's my way of reminding you uh, to be a Berean, that um, you should come to church with all readiness to hear the teaching of the word of God. But then you got to go home and check it out to see if these things are true. Okay, so that's, that's, that's the thing about, about the scriptures. Um, you should become a student and be able to do that. So um, I, and I, I don't know the Bible is, um, some people are overwhelmed by the Bible because there's a lot here. There's a lot going in there and, and it's kind of hard sometimes to gather it all in. It's all good. It's all great. It's all God. And none of it is false. None of it is filler. Um, in fact, Second uh, Timothy says, all scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And, uh, but there are some scriptures that come to us, and they have, I guess, in my, my view, some more concentrated power. I mean, so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at several verses that are game-changers. There are some, these are, these are, in my mind, the valedictorians, the head of the class, the Heisman Trophy-winning, <laughs> Nobel Prize-winning scriptures, and uh, they, they each have power to smash strongholds in our lives. So that's the title of our series, is going to be Smashing Strongholds. So right up, right, right, right up front, I'd like to borrow a definition of a stronghold that I found online. Here's what a stronghold is. A stronghold is stubborn patterns of thinking that are stubbornly resistant to God's will and God's way for us. They, they are an obstacle that has to be cleared in order for us to change. You know, my marriage won't change, my, my business isn't going to change, my attitude isn't going to change until my pattern of thinking changes. And certain patterns of thinking, they're just stubborn. They're just stuck. They're called strongholds. So starting today, scriptures that smash strongholds. Today's message, where we're going to go today, is I am not a victim. I'm not a victim. And that's a stronghold. You know, people who, who, who look at the world and life and they say, you know what? Things happen to me. People do stuff to me. I don't have any control. My life is in the control of, of, of other people and it's in control of other circumstances. That's wrong. 
That's just not scripture. That's a stronghold. And we're about to tear that down. We're going to be in Genesis for quite a while today um, until we get to the game-changer verse, which will be way towards the end of the message. And I, I first want to talk a little bit about abuse because victims are people who've been abused. And uh, as I talk about this, please, please understand with tenderness, I want to talk about this topic. I'm not, it's not my desire to step on nerves or to stir something up, but I believe the Holy Spirit wants to free people today. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that, and we're going to lo- be looking at the life of Joseph, probably more than any other person, except for maybe Jesus in all of Scripture. Joseph had a genuine right to be a card-carrying member of a Victims Forever okay, club. I mean, I mean it's, it's not even a close call with Joseph. He's, you're going to see what this guy went through, and uh, we hear a lot today out there about people who make claims where they've been abused, and, uh, and I, I think some of them are true, and sometimes I think what people face and they call abuse, I'm not so sure that it qualifies, but there's no question about Joseph. I mean, he for sure was abused, and um, so to start, we're going to, before we get into too, too far, as we go through this, I want to build a, uh, a list of characteristics of abuse. Okay, so first one we're going to talk about is hatred, and it seems to gather speed. Hatred gathers speed over time. So we're going to jump into the life of Joseph, and this is starting in Genesis chapter 37. I encourage you, by the way, to bring your Bibles. And uh, if you don't, of course, I, many often, most of the time I'll put them up there, but I encourage you to have them too. So uh, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Now, um, and, Joseph, okay, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Okay, so already we've got a 17-year-old boy. Um, he's tattling on his brothers. Not a good start for relationships, right? Nobody likes a tattletale, except parents like a tattletale. I don't know why that is. Okay, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now there is the family dysfunction right there. A lot of abuse is formed in dysfunctional families. They don't think right, they don't act right, they don't work right, and a lot of damage is done in, a, in, in dis- dysfunctional homes. And sometimes you can catch this crazy stuff from your parents. You know, remember his parents, Isaac and Rebecca, they both had their favorites. They had um, one liked Jacob and one liked Esau, and a whole lot of stuff ensued about that. Now Jacob has got 12 of his own sons, and he's playing the same dysfunctional game that his parents played. This is my favorite kid. He gets special clothes. And his brothers don't like that. Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, there it is, they hated him. And this wasn't some kind of, you know, okay, I'm not going to let you tag along with me to the movie theater kind of hatred. It was so serious. It says that they could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even be civil with, with him. Do you recognize that? Have you seen that personally? Have you, have you seen a situation where people just can't be nice to each other? They can't behave peacefully? Verse 7. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. This was not Joseph's best play here. He says, hey guys, I just had a dream. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> you know, I already know you think dad favors me more than you, but... Um, For what it's worth, I had this dream, and I was this stack of hay, and you guys were all stacks of hay, and your stacks of hay is bowed down to my stack of hay. (laughs) 
I'm laughing because like, he, he's an idiot. <laughs> Why is he telling them this? Okay, I don't know. But so verse eight, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. He parades in this coat. First off, dad's responsible for this whole thing of division, but he parades around in the coat and he has these dreams and then he tells them these dreams. I, I don't know. I just thinking, okay, this is getting pretty bad. And we're going to find the real issue behind it in verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him. His brothers, see it there? They were jealous of him. Now, I just want to say this right up front. Nothing justifies hatred. Nothing. Nothing. If, if you're living and it's a stronghold for you of victimization, you know, you may have done a lot of things to try to earn your way out of it. You may have said a lot of things to try to talk your way out of that. You know, why do these people do this? Why, why, why? You have all these questions. But nothing that you do or ever fail to do could ever justify the action that hatred takes or, or the abuse that, that hatred creates. If, if, if you're trying to solve the problem of hatred someone else is putting upon you, you just need to be free. It's not your fault. You are not responsible for the actions of some other person. You're not. They're responsible for their own actions. Be free from any sense of responsibility. You know, because I think if I could just find a way, if it, it, why is he screaming at me like this? What did I do wrong? What what no, 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 no. There's nothing Joseph is doing that justifies what his brothers are doing here or any hatred towards you. Nothing justifies that. So number one, hatred. Number two, um, signal of, of abuse is being treated as worthless. So apparently his father decides, dad decides, okay, we're going to sort these things out with your brothers. And so they make this great big lunch, this wonderful lunch, and they pack it up. And, and he says, your brothers are out there with the flocks. So I want you to take this out there to them and maybe you can patch things up. So that's a pretty good idea. Pretty nice idea, right? Take some lunch to the boys? Yeah, okay, sounds good. So Joseph goes hunting for them, and he wants to bring this nice lunch. Now, while he's approaching them, the scripture says that these abusive brothers are actually talking about him. Verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm too... Uh, immature sometimes when I read the word of God. I'm sure that the conversation sounded exactly like this. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into the pit. <laughs> uh, you know, I never hear bad guys talk like that way in the movies. Anyway, okay. But they make this plan. They're going to kill him and throw him in the pit. Verse 21, but when Reuben, who was the oldest brother, heard this, he says, he rescued him out of their hands saying, no, 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 we're not going to kill him. And, um, you know, imagine now this scene um, he's, he's bringing lunch to his brothers. What happened there? Did they circle around him and start pushing him back and forth to where he didn't have control? Did they start bullying him? Did they just reach out and slap that lunch out of his hand? What, what, what happened in those moments? So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. Take that coat off. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Okay, no water in the pit. Hard landing or soft landing? Hard landing. Then they sat down to eat. Hey, you got this food, we might as well have lunch. Verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, 
What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him. Hey, we can make money out of this deal. I, I, I wonder, I, I don't know if I really have a good answer. I don't have an answer to this. Maybe it's obvious and I'm just dumb, but I wonder what's worse, to be killed or to be sold. I mean, I don't know. He's being sold by so much property. He's being treated as worthless. Verse 28, then Midianite traders pass by. Now, there's, now the negotiating starts. Hey, you know, hey, what will you give us for this guy? He's 17. He's got his whole life. I mean, we won't need much. They, they barter back and forth. And the whole time, he's hearing them talk about him as if he's not there, just being treated that way. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. I, I, I looked, tried to dig that out. That's about $100. They sold their brother into slavery for the rest of his life, as far as they knew, for 100 bucks. There was 10 of them. My cut, 10 bucks. That's a couple of lattes and a pop cake pop at Starbucks. It's nothing. That's way more than 10 bucks, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, okay. So it's one coffee and a cake pop. And you get them both, don't you? Okay. So, I mean, they got nothing for him. I sold my brother off into slavery. I got 10 bucks. Now I'm going to go pillow my head at night and sleep like a baby because the world is good. The scriptures don't talk about what went on in these guys' souls. But like, I believe like a cancer, this went in there. Because years later, this is going to pop its rear, rear, it's just going to rear its ugly head. And um, I, I don't know, scripture doesn't talk about that. Okay, so we're seeing the characteristics of abuse. Hatred, treated as worthless. Number three, unjust condemnation. 39 verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Bought again, bought him. He, he bought him. So he's been sold again. How worthless. Sold. Sold a second time. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. So Joseph, I'm flying along here, as you can tell. So Joseph found favor in his master's sight and attended him, and the master made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. So Joseph gets promoted, and the Lord is putting his blessing upon this household because Joseph is there. Verse 7, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and has put everything that he has in my charge. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You know, and now things are about to go really bad for Joseph. It's been bad all along. And, and, and as we get into where it's going to go, I just want to say to anybody here who, you know, maybe as you hear this today, you're thinking, you know, I, I've been trying to do the right thing. I've been trying to do the right thing for weeks, maybe months. Maybe I've been trying to do it for years. And you might not be real proud about something in your history three years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, but you have been really trying recently to do the right thing. I just want to say this to you. Beware of the temptation to rebel when your initial acts of surrender are not quickly rewarded by God. 
You know, some of you have decided to, to, to keep on loving, keep on serving, to keep on believing. Be careful in your righteousness that, that if it doesn't immediately go right for you, that you don't get to this place where, where, you know what, I'm done with this. I give up. Well, you know, it doesn't make any difference. I'm done with this. Well, how long have you been trying? Well, I've been trying for three months. It's been hard. It can take longer. It can take longer. But your obedience will be rewarded. I just want to say that. We're, we're getting to that. Okay. And this lady just can't let it go. Day after day, Joseph's not listening to her, and she keeps on. Notice she, she shifts to slander. She catches him alone again in, in, uh, uh, in verse 12. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he, let, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that she had, she had left his garment, he had left his garment in her hand and had fled, out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Who's the subject of that sense? It's her husband. Look what my husband did to us. He came in to lie, this guy, now, now she shifts to Joseph. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. She didn't care so much really about Joseph and what was going on there. She just wanted to get at her husband. She's, she's not attacking Joseph here. She's attacking her husband. See what happened? Do you see the person that he brought in here? All that bitterness, for whatever reason that she had in, in her toward her husband, she's now acting out in, in this pursuit of Joseph. Of course, Potiphar finds out, and he's now all on his high horse. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that the wife spoke to him, he says, this is the way your servant treated me? Hey, Potiphar, bro. This is really not about you. <laughs> if he believed, you know, his wife is saying, this guy tried to rape me. And Potiphar says, he did that to me? Wouldn't a loving husband's first response be, honey, come here, are you okay? I love you. I am so sorry that this happened. Shouldn't that have been his first response? No, his first response is, hey, it's about me. What this guy do this to me for? <laughs> And believe, you know, I, I just kind of catch that. So his anger is kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. There it is, unjust condemnation. Joseph didn't deserve to be sold as a slave. He didn't deserve to be sold a second time as a slave. And he didn't deserve to be in prison. Hatred, treated as worthless, unjust condemnation, and now shame. It's interesting um, when you look at the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Um, there's... Scripture says relatively little. It says some, but it says relatively little about the physical pain that he endured. But it does say, it, it says a lot. Uh, it says almost nothing about physical pain, but, but, but it says here in Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. It's, it's the carrying of the cross. It's the words spoken. It's the spitting. It's, it's the laughter. It's the mockery. It's the crown of thorns. And he deserved so much different than that. And it was the shame. This is true abuse here. And, you know, still, Joseph, even innocently in prison, he's still faithful to God. And God gives him favor through a miraculous set of experiences. He's able to interpret some dreams 
And the interpretation of those dreams was spot on. They came true. And so he's helping to get out, and he makes this comment to these guys as they're, they're getting out of prison. And he's saying, verse 14, only remember me when it's well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and to get me out of this house. Get me out of this prison. And he stays, though, and he languishes in prison. And this is the last part of abuse. Hatred, treated as worthless, unjust condemnation, shame, and this. Abuse is not a one-time thing. It persists. It persists. And many of you know the story. Um, Pharaoh has this dream about seven fat cows and then seven skinny starving cows. And the lean cows eat the healthy, strong, fat cows. And, And he's pretty upset about this dream. He doesn't know what it means, so he calls his priests, and none of them can explain it. And and then he hears about this guy in prison named Joseph who's able to accurately interpret dreams and calls for him, and through through the Lord's grace and uh, favor, um, he, he, he sets Pharaoh on his ear when he tells him what it means. And, and Pharaoh realizes that, that uh, Joseph really is hearing from God. And so he places him second in command over all of Egypt. <laughs> now, let me, um, let me set some time frames here for you. This is not going to be a lot of math, but I want you to catch the math in these two. If you go back to Genesis 37, Joseph, being 17 year old, seven years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. So he's 17 at the time that he gets sold into slavery. Genesis 41, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So, quick math here. He's, he's been, uh, it's been 13 years since his brothers sold him into slavery. 13 years he's been suffering abuse at the hand of person after person after person. Verse um, 38, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, and there is no one discerning and wise as you are, you shall be over my house, and all, all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regards the throne, I'll be greater than you. I have to think at, that, at this point, what was Potiphar's wife thinking at this point? And Potiphar. I don't know. But I know this. Joseph is having a very, very big day. He woke up in a prison cell. It wasn't very nice, probably. They didn't probably have HBO or ESPN. Right? The prisons, prisons were not good. He woke up in prison, and when he went to bed that night, he had himself a satin pillow. And he was second in command of the whole land. Essentially, Egypt was the world at that point. It was uh, pretty predominant. And so all of a sudden, he's, he's having a really big day. That's a pretty good day. And, um, um, and, and, and when vindication comes to him, it comes really, really quickly here. And, and so Joseph, the story goes on, Joseph institutes this whole policy. As a result of the dreams, it basically was seven fat years followed by seven lean years. And so he institutes this policy and he says, okay, we're going to save like crazy in all these excess years. And what we save then is going to save us in the seven lean years. Dave Ramsey would have loved this dude, right? Okay. <laughs> he was right in the middle of that. And so meanwhile, in the back in the land of Israel, back in Joseph's hometown, there's famine going on like everywhere else. And um, Jacob, Joseph's father, says to his sons, hey, there's, I've heard there's some food down in Egypt. Get on down there and get us some food because we're all going to die if you don't. So um, there's a whole scenario ensues where um, the abused person, Joseph, recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Some great drama going on here. And they probably weren't expecting 
that when they got to Egypt where there still was food, that they were going to run into their brother and he would now be in command. I mean, they, they you know, it's, it's it, and it can be hard when your siblings seemingly are doing better than you. You know, imagine that conversation. How you guys doing? Oh, we're still shepherds. We're, you know, we're kind of getting by. How you doing? Oh, well, I'm second in command of the world. I mean, so anyway, Joseph goes through this whole thing of trying to lure them, um, lure the whole family down there from um, to, to Egypt. And you can do the math, and we can do it later. I don't want to take the time with you. But basically, it's been about 25 years now since his brothers sold him into slavery. I, I'm going to say it's been 25 years of abuse. Now, some of you will say, well, well wait a minute. Um, things are going pretty good for him now. I mean, he's got everything. I would say that not so fast because I think the hardest hurts to overcome are the home hurts. By far, if you have a stronghold in your life of, of victimization, if you feel trapped by things that have happened to you, it, it's, it's, it's because of someone very close to you. That's by far what I see. David prophesies about the words, of, he prophesies about Jesus in Psalm, Psalm 41. He says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So that's the face of abuse. And now I want to um, talk for a couple of minutes about victims and victimization. And, and then we're going to hop to the solution. We're getting closer to that game changer. Sociologists define um, victimization as this. They say a person harmed or injured as a result of a crime or an accident. That's the clinical. Um, and increasingly, though, there's a secondary definition now. A person who has come to feel helpless and passive in the face of misfortune or ill treatment. And that's what we're going at right now. That's the stronghold. Someone who's come to feel passive and, and overwhelmed in the face of ill treatment. I can't change this. I, I, I can't help this. I, I, I'm stuck. That's a stronghold. It's a stronghold. So real quickly, I'm going to give you um, five characteristics of a victim, of a victim mentality, five characteristics. You know if you have a victim mentality if, one, you're focused on yourself, focused on self. Everything goes through the lens of everybody's an actor in my play, and it's all about how everything affects me. Now, by the way, there are gradations in this, okay? But anyway, so focus on self. Number two, ongoing pain. This happened a long time ago. And it hurts to just as bad today, um, maybe even worse, and uh, because of something, maybe some bitterness that, that took root back when it first happened. Number three, stuck in the past. There's no hope for the future. I'm stuck, stuck, stuck in the past. Number four, paralyzed. I'm not working on it. I'm not learning about it. I'm not trying to fix it. I'm not trying to move forward. Number five, it's a stronghold. It's a pattern of thinking, stubbornly resistant God's will or God's, God's word for me. And this is a pattern where maybe... Maybe some of us are stuck within it today. You know, what happened to me? What was done to me? What was said to me? And you get trapped. And you can't get healthy. And you, and you can't get whole. And you can't go forward. But we're destroying a stronghold today. So let's get to that verse. For Genesis 49, verse 33. When Jacob, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up, to, drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So Jacob, their father, died Next chapter, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Interesting what happens now. Um, drop down to verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, 
It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. That thing festered in them for 25 years, and they know today is the day of reckoning. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, the reason they sent a message is you don't just waltz into the second in command's office. You've got to make an appointment. So they sent a message. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. I've never studied this out. I don't know whether Joseph actually said that to them or they just made that up. What do you think? I don't know. I, I don't know. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He wept. He wept. Does that sound like to you like a bitter man? I mean, they remember all the stuff they did. And they're thinking, okay, now you can pay us all back. You can squash us like so many bugs. But he just starts crying. And then here's the game changer. Genesis 50, 20. Here's what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Everything is different when you get this. If you're stuck in a victim mentality, if you're trapped beneath the weight of things that have happened to you, this verse changes everything. I'm not under the power of another person. I'm under the power of a God who has everything under his power, including me and including those who are against me. If, if, if you were going to write one note today, it would be this one. Write this one down. Only the Lord can move us beyond the pain and abuse Amen. of betrayal. Only the Lord can do that. He can and he will. I know it took us a lot of scripture to get here, but the message really is just this one verse. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. I lovingly call this the Genesis 50-20 rule. There are three important parts here, and we're, gonna, we're just about done. One, you meant it for evil, because evil intent is growing. Notice here that there's no denial. His brothers come to him. They're all freaked out, rightfully so, Notice Joseph does not say to them, hey, 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 it's all good. It's okay. This happens all the time. People freak out, and then they sell their brothers into slavery. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> he didn't say that to them. No. He, he looks them in their face, and he says, you meant this for evil. You're not good guys. <laughs> I was good to you because of father, but you are not good guys. Brothers don't do that. You meant it for evil. You don't have to smooth over the abuse you've been taking. You, you don't have to stick it under a carpet. You don't have to act like it never happened. You don't have to welcome them back into your circle of trust. But you also can't be trapped by it. You can't be bitter about it. You can't get stuck there. You can't live like that either. Have you, have you, noticed, have you noticed in our culture how animosity just seems to be growing in general? Evil intent is growing. And personally, I don't want to be part of that. I do not want to be a part of that parade. I don't want to be a part of that circus. It's rampant right now in politics. It's rampant right now on social media. I can hardly believe the things people feel comfortable in saying. It's crazy. Evil intent is growing. Okay. Ready for some good news? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Say yes. Okay, thank, thank you. Okay. Okay. Verse 2. But God... 
Yet God's love here is controlling. But God, but God, there is a sermon series <laughs> that we could lovingly call Great Butts in the Bible. <laughs> Can you believe I said that? Yeah, I, I know you believe that. Okay. Um, if you go through the scriptures and just say, where does it say, but God? You see amazing things. They're all over. I don't have time for this. Here's a couple. I'm going to fly. Man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. But God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. I got a whole bunch of these. I'm going to keep going. Look them up sometime. Look up the phrase, but God, and start looking and reading scriptures. And here's what I want you to see. Joseph... Although this scripture, this game changer comes up in Genesis 50, he had already been living it before that moment. He didn't wait 25 years to get this place of victory. He didn't say, I think I'm going to be better for a while, but and I'll get straight after they apologize and after they make it right. That is not what he did. It wasn't like that at all. He did go through some mechanisms with them, if you read the story, to see if he could trust them. But that's a different topic. And you can read the story all about that story. But way before Genesis 50, 20, he looks into his brother's eyes and he's just overwhelmed with this compassion. All the way back in chapter 45, uh, chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself. This is before this conversation. This is earlier. Uh, could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He, he, he cried, make everyone go out for me. So he's saying to all of the people in attendance in his courts there, everybody out. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh, they could hear him all through the palace. He was howling. He was crying so loud. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You're Joseph. Joseph who? What? They did not know what was going on. He says, so Joseph said to his brother, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm jo your brother Joseph. Look, at, I'm the brother you sold into slavery. And then here it is, verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Yeah, come on. <laughs> this is way before. And you don't just get to this game changer in just a few minutes. God meant it for good. His plan is showing. By chapter 50, it's already welded into Joseph's soul. But Ge Genesis 45 is not even the beginning of this. You can go back to way before, when he, uh, before, way before he meets his brothers, way before the famine. Um, chapter 41, verse 50. Before the year of famine came, so in the first seven years, in those seven years of plenty, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. So he must have gotten married and had kids. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, quote, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. Wow. So he's already got this. He said, God's been so gracious to me. He's been so good to me. Yeah, I was abused. Yes, these things happened to me. Yes, I may have been tempted to feel like a victim, but something bigger was going on. God was doing this. God was doing this. What an awesome, freeing realization that had to have been. Verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The focus is always on God. A victim is somebody who's under the power of someone who wishes them harm. Catch this. I'm not under the power of somebody who wishes me harm. 
You are not under the power of someone who wishes you harm. You are not working for someone who ultimately wishes you harm. You are not living with someone who wishes you harm. You are not under the power of, of any other person. You are under the authority of God Almighty. God is the one who is in control of your life. This passage, this, this Genesis 50-20, is the Romans 8-28 of the Old Testament. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Do you believe that? <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you really believe that, that, that God is causing these things, these terrible things that are happening or have happened to you, to somehow work together for your good? And if somebody else does something to you, if somebody else says something to you, God is bigger than that. He's greater than that. His plans are that if God has allowed that to happen, it has to be part of his plan. I don't see it right now. This hurts. But I trust God. Stronghold smashed. I'm not a victim. I'm not at the mercy of people. I'm under the mercy of a loving God who's, who's promised to work all things together for good, for my good. And he's promised it. It's going to come to pass. God meant it for my good. He meant it for my good. He meant it for my good. Now, some of you are thinking, um, I'm, I'm, we're going to be done in three minutes here. Some of you are thinking, how do I cross this canyon, this grand canyon of knowing this to actually experiencing this? Because this needs to be more than something that you heard at church. Okay, so I'm going to go at light speed. One, embrace it. Embrace it, it's true. This needs to become your new reality. Everything that's happened, God meant it for good. That, that changes everything. Make it your personal story. This is my story. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. good. So embrace it. Second thing is confess it. Actually say it out loud. I think some of you probably need to, for a while, say this 100 times a day. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I mean, just get that into your soul. Another thing you do is do a Bible study about the goodness of God. Memorize 10 verses about the goodness of God. You know? I would have despaired unless I believed that I'd see the goodness of God in the land of the living. There are lots of scriptures. The Lord is good, a stronghold. I mean, there's so many good ones. The goodness of God, look them up. Embrace it, confess it. And here's the last thing, stand in it. Ephesians 6 talks about, talks about the whole armor of God. It says, when you get that whole armor on, then stand. Stand in it. And I want to end with this. Um, I saw a comment made uh, recently by the, um, the president-elect of our denomination, and um, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's perfect for this moment. Praise shifts the focus, and prayer shifts the burden. Let's pray. So, Lord, today, um, thank you, God, that although people and circumstances in our enemy can do things to us, you still can roll all of that up into something higher and better and grander. And it, it can hurt. And, and I know that you're not insensitive to the pain that we experience, Lord. And I particularly want to just pause and slow down for a moment and, and talk to you, God, about the, maybe the present pain that some in, in, in my hearing this moment are feeling because we have talked about their topic. We've talked about their pain. We've talked about what is happening to them today. And for some of them, what's happening to them today is because of something that physically took place or was said a long time ago. Lord, would you break strongholds right now? Would you pour the truth of Genesis 50, 20 upon our soul? That although people do things and evil things happen, you will 
use all of it for our good. So Lord, first and foremost, I ask you to stop the bleeding for people whose present pain would be maybe characterized as an open wound. Would you stop the wound supernaturally? Peace that goes beyond our understanding. Forgiveness, all of those kinds of things, Lord. Faith, speak, speak those things into souls, we pray. And God, for those who are so tender and wounded that this message just feels like white noise. Lord, let your love just perch there. Be what they need to be. We know that's your plan. We know, Lord, that your spirit will be perfectly tailored for every heart. Speak words, Lord, of life and of love and of hope to people who need to hear that. And Lord, we pray too against strongholds. Smash them, Lord. Smash them. Your, your word is your breathed God, this God-breathed word, Lord, will never return void. So let it accomplish, Lord, that for which it was designed. And Lord, one more thing. I'd like to talk to you about the brothers. I know part of me being freed from what they did to me will, will happen when I'm able to pray for them. So Lord, we pray for those who have done evil to us, who are doing evil to us in our lives, and we ask God for you to become their God and to touch their soul and to bless their tomorrows. However, that would take shape. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have the prayer team.